This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. I appreciate you tuning in to Trumpet Hour today. I'm Joel Hilliker. We're going to talk about drugs on the program today and some of the dangers they pose. Modern society uses drugs extensively, both legal and illegal, and they're seen as the solution to so many of our problems. But how many problems are they causing? In our first segment, we'll look at the link between drugs and mass shootings. There's, this has become a scourge in the United States. There are many factors contributing to this. Stephen Flurry has been focusing on the family breakdown that is so common in virtually all mass shootings. He's been talking about that on the Trumpet Daily. People coming from broken and dysfunctional homes that end up committing these atrocities. We've also talked quite a lot about the spiritual dimension of these events, the presence of malevolent evil spirits in our world, and we certainly can't ignore that. But another factor present in all the prominent recent mass shooting events in the U.S. is drugs, prescribed drugs, recreational drugs, illegal drugs. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau about the link between these drugs and these nightmarish events, and even the link to the spiritual dimension I just mentioned. And then we'll contrast the common reliance on synthetic drugs to cure whatever ails us with the use of herbs and natural plants. We'll talk to holistic nutritionist Jörg Mardian about why we shouldn't blindly accept the medical community dismissing herb use and advocating for synthetic drugs. He'll give us a few examples of where herbs might be just what you need to help bring your body into balance. In our third segment, we'll switch gears and head over to Germany, where, as is the case in so much of Europe right now, politics are in disarray. The man who replaced Angela Merkel as chancellor has abysmal approval ratings right at the time Germany's leadership in the European Union is more needed than ever. The Bible prophesies of a strong man taking over German politics in the end time. We've been watching for the emergence of this prophesied leader for decades. And for many years, our editor-in-chief has talked about the possibility of this prophetic role being fulfilled by a man named Carl Theodor zu Gutenberg. He's been out of the political limelight for many years, but a recent development appears to be thrusting him back into prominence. We'll talk with trumpet writer Josue Michels about this. And finally, I'll share with you a bit of a message that I gave this week to our teenagers at the summer camp here in Edmond, our summer educational program, about one of the most important factors that underpins all godly leadership. Let's start now by looking at the deadly link between drugs and mass shootings in this report from Abraham Blondeau. The United States just experienced a deadly surge of mass shootings. From Buffalo to Chicago to Texas, scenes of heartbreak and mourning shocked the world. In the aftermath of these events, people are always searching for the answers. Why did this happen? What motivated these young men to become mass murderers? One influence that has been consistently present in mass shootings and other violent episodes is drug use. This can range from prescribed drugs to recreational drugs to illegal drugs. 
This does not mean that all drug users become mass shooters or that every mass shooter uses drugs. But the evidence shows there is a connection between drug use and a mind that turns to violent behavior. Several scientific studies have confirmed the factual link between drug abuse and mass shooters. In 2020, the National Threat Assessment Center studied 34 mass attacks from 2019 that harmed three or more people. The two common attributes of the attackers was a history of domestic violence and of drug abuse. A January 2021 study done by the Department of Psychiatry at the Columbia University Medical Center analyzed 14,785 murders between the year 1900 and 2019. 1,315 mass shooters were identified from the data set, and the report found that 11% of them had psychotic symptoms. Psychotic refers to severe mental disorders that cause people to lose touch with reality and have delusions or hallucinations. 22% of mass shooters had a lifetime history of drug use, mainly marijuana or alcohol abuse. The report writes, quote, The relationship between psychiatric symptoms and mass murder may be less associated with psychotic symptoms than with subacute, more common psychopathology, such as depressive symptoms, personality-based symptoms, drug or alcohol use, and reactions to adverse life events. In other words, drug use is a more common gateway to mass murder than having a certified severe mental illness. With drug use mainstream in the United States, this should be a major area of concern for the millions of Americans using drugs recreationally. Another study from 2020 published on the National Institute of Health's website, authored by several prominent university professors from the United States, establishes a link between frequent marijuana use and an increase in violent behavior. The report states, quote, The consumption of marijuana is associated with an increase in violent behavior over the course of an individual's lifespan. A high risk of psychosis for frequent users an increase of cardiovascular diseases and deterioration in health for individuals who have pre-existing mental health issues such as post-traumatic stress disorder, social anxiety, and depression. According to research studies, marijuana use causes aggressive behavior, causes or exacerbates psychosis, and produces paranoia." End quote. A key factor identified in the increase of violent behavior has been the increase of tetrahydrocannabinol, or commonly known as THC, in marijuana being produced today. The authors investigate 14 specific examples of chronic marijuana users and in conjunction with other data, come to the following conclusions. Number one, marijuana use causes violent behavior through increased aggressiveness, paranoia, and personality changes. In other words, they're more suspicious, aggressive, or angry. Number two, recent illicit and medical marijuana, especially grown by caregivers for medical marijuana, is of much higher potency and more likely to cause violent behavior. Number three, marijuana use and its adverse effects should be considered in cases of acts of violence as its role is properly assigned to its high association. And number four, 
recognize that high-potency marijuana is a predictable and preventable cause of tragic violent consequences. These sorts of studies directly contradict the narrative behind the legalization of marijuana. The booming cannabis business is causing marijuana use to become mainstream. Its widespread use is only exacerbating the unstable minds of many Americans. One such unstable mind was Robert Cremo III, the Highland Park shooter who shot and killed seven people and injured 46 at a July 4th parade in Chicago. Cremo was known for his drug use and one music collaborator said, quote, he was an isolated stoner who completely lost touch with reality, end quote. Cremo had a very disturbing history of making violent music, disturbing imagery, and bizarre behavior. While there are many other factors at play, and each situation is unique, the scientific evidence shows that marijuana definitely intensified Cremo's instability. Other mass shooters were also marijuana users. The Wall Street Journal reported, quote, Alex Berenson, author of Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence, pointed out that the New York Times had curiously removed from an article about the Uvalde school shooter, a former co-worker's recollection, that he complained about his grandmother not letting him smoke weed. The Times didn't append a correction to the story, as it might be expected to do when fixing a factual inaccuracy. Assuming the elided detail was accurate, it would fit a pattern. Mass shooters at Representative Gabby Gifford's constituent meeting in Tucson, Arizona in 2011, a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado 2012, and Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida 2016, the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas 2017, and Majory Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida 2018, were reported to be marijuana users. It could be a coincidence but increasing evidence suggests a connection, end quote. Is it not a coincidence that as marijuana use has increased, so has mass shootings? Another drug that can increase violent behavior is prescribed by a doctor, antidepressants. The first antidepressants were introduced in the 1950s. The first ones developed were monoamine oxidase inhibitors, and then tricyclic antidepressants were introduced near the end of the decade. These are prone to side effects, but remained the standard until the 1980s. Qualudes were introduced in the 1970s and were used recreationally by people, uh, including many celebrities, and were prescribed as antidepressants. However, their widespread use caused overdoses, car accidents, and eventually the FDA made it illegal to sell them. Valium, a benzodiazepine, began to be prescribed for anxiety in the 70s and early 80s. In 1978, more than 2.3 billion pills were sold in the United States. It was sidelined because of its highly addictive nature. The big turning point was in 1987, when Prozac was approved as an antidepressant. It was the first selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, also known as SSRI, to hit the market. These drugs use different mechanisms to keep more serotonin in the brain. The introduction of SSRIs corresponded with rules changing to allow drug companies 
to do direct-to-the-consumer marketing. Soon after, other SSRIs came on the scene. Celexa, Lexapro, Paxil, and Zoloft. Antidepressants soon became the third most prescribed drug in the United States. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention reported that from 2005 to 2008, 11% of Americans over the age of 12 were on antidepressant medication. From 1988 to 2008, antidepressant use has increased 400%. Generally, antidepressant use increases with age and is more prevalent in women than men. Despite their widespread use, SSRIs have a long history of deadly side effects. In 2004, there was such a strong connection between antidepressants and an increase in suicidal behavior, especially for young people, that all drug manufacturers had to add a black box warning about the increased risk of suicidal thinking and behavior. The CDC found in 2013 that 35.3% of those who committed suicide were on antidepressants at the time of their death. Psychology Today quotes a study of FDA databases that show antidepressants can cause violent behavior. The researchers found 484 drugs that had triggered at least 200 cases of violent behavior over a 69-month period. 31 drugs were identified using this threshold. Those 31 drugs caused 1,527 of the 1,937 violent incidents. Quote, the drugs in that list of 31 included varanicline, an aid to smoking cessation, 11 antidepressants, 6 hypnotics slash sedatives, and 3 drugs for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Antidepressants were responsible for 572 cases of violence towards others, the 3 ADHD drugs for 108, and the hypnotic sedatives for 97, end quote. Among the antidepressants identified are the most popular SSRIs, Prozac, Paxil, Luxov, Effexor, and Pristique. Freelance writer Molly Carter lists 16 examples of mass shooters who were using antidepressants at the time of their attack. Some of the mass shooters who were on antidepressants was James Holmes, or the Batman movie killer who killed 12 people in 2012, Another was Ivan Lopez, who killed three of his fellow soldiers at Fort Hood in 2013. Court documents show that Dylan Roof, the Charleston church shooter, was on antidepressants when he attacked the churchgoers. As stated before, this was not the only factor that contributed to these individuals choosing to commit heinous acts, but the common link cannot be denied. Whether it is marijuana, antidepressants or another drug, these substances impact the mind and cause the individual to lose their connection with reality. These drugs can cause individuals to lose control over their thoughts and actions to various degrees. This is a very dangerous situation for a human mind to enter into because there is a downward spiritual force that can influence this instability. What psychologists describe as psychosis and all of these violent side effects to drug use 
is the physical consequences of a spiritual influence on the human mind. Trumpet executive editor Stephen Flurry wrote in the article, The Motive for Mass Shootings, quote, But they still wonder, why are these things happening? They are happening because our children's minds are under attack. They are happening because the spirit world is real. There are evil beings just as real as you and me, with personalities and goals that are demonstrated by the violence they are influencing mass shooters to do. End quote. The Bible reveals there is a very real spirit world that includes Satan, the devil, and other demons who rebelled against God. See 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 and Revelation 12 verse 9. This evil spirit being broadcast to the human mind with attitudes and emotions, just like music is broadcasted to a radio. You can read that in Ephesians 2 verse 2. When an individual's mind is embittered from a life of abuse, anger, parental neglect, and violent imagery, drugs can remove any barriers to broadcasts of extreme violence. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote in the article, Charlottesville Violence, The Real Danger is Invisible, quote, Demons prey on empty minds. A mind not filled with God's truth is fertile ground for these perverted spirit beings. Demons are the hidden cause of our society's many incurable problems. They have far more power than humans do. The only way we can fight back is with God's power. End quote. This is why drugs are linked to mass shootings. Drug use opens the mind to the influence of the demon world. The Bible identifies Satan as the father of all murder, John 8:44. You can't understand mass shootings or any other problem happening in this world without bringing in the spiritual dimension. There is an evil spiritual force, but God is far more powerful. We don't need to be afraid of the spirit world if we are obeying God's law and striving to be close to God. In a world falling apart at the seams, you need God. There is no other way to understand or to have real hope in this world. To learn more, please read our article, The Motives for Mass Shootings, and our book, America Under Attack. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. The first quote-unquote medicines that man used in cultures worldwide since the dawn of civilization and throughout history have been herbs, medicinal plants. But now since the refinement of chemical technology, their use has diminished and society now relies on synthetic drugs and treats those as the premier solution for supposed healing, and the uh, herbal therapies are considered outdated. But are they really? To talk about this, we have via Skype from his office in British Columbia, holistic nutritionist and personal trainer, Jorg Mardian. Hello, Jorg. Hello there. First, I, I'd like to talk about synthetic drugs and and the medicines that are that are in such common use today there's a lot of information out there to show that the trust that people put in these is misplaced 
especially in the age of uh, the COVID vaccine, which has been proven ineffective or even harmful. We've talked about that before, but maybe you can just talk about your view of the uh, synthetic approach to medicine. Uh, absolutely. So the majority of medical doctors, <clears throat> they're quite dismissive of anything natural, of course, even hostile, uh, because they believe there's no scientific proof that these natural methods work. And so their faith is in synthetic means. You know, within a medical system, it, it prizes efficacy, you know, like that bullet approach. Uh, but medicines can harm you. And death within this system, as I'll show you, is really counted as the cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. So ironically, about uh, 50 to 90 percent of a drug that you take has ingredients in it that are intolerable to some patients, um, like peanut oil or uh, lactoses or dyes or gluten or certain types of sugars. And people don't really know that. And there's other ingredients that would be almost like a medieval potion. You know, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of, like, I was shocked. Uh, Gila monster spit, ground up cow lungs, um, snake venom is in some medicines, horse urine, sloth fungi. Yeah, this. I, I wish I was kidding. <laughs> yeah, this, this, sounds, uh, this sounds like something out of a Shakespeare play. It really does. Now, that's not the worst, though, because the active medicinal properties have the worst safety record. Uh, the FDA more or less gives oversight to the pharmaceutical industry, in, uh, and that means that they receive a lot of the funding from them. And that means that 68% of drugs now have what's called an expedited process, a favorable process to the pharmaceutical companies. This is not good because it results in a you know a jaw dropping ninety four percent approved medications uh, or medications being approved with little evidence of safety or effectiveness. So you know, the, it, the the doctors I mean, are uh, you're saying that they look askance at the natural uh, herbs and those kinds of uh, treatments because they don't have the scientific backing. But you're saying that. Did I understand that right? 94% of the drugs that are approved lack uh, the, the kind of uh, rigorous scientific proof that it actually works? Yeah, it's mostly the new drugs that are coming out now. So they're really just derivatives of older drugs, but um, they're, they're expedited through the process so fast that there's very little evidence of their safety. Hmm. And uh, yes, so we're kind of balancing and counterbalancing here. We're saying one thing, but not doing the other, you know, and it's really a duplicity. It, it's where the cure is worse than the disease. So the FDA actually shows on our website that these properly regulated and prescribed and researched drugs cause 2.74 million adverse reactions annually. Um, they cause 128,000 people to die from them annually. So... If you extrapolate that information over decades, you know, ask yourself, is this the price of progress? Mm -hmm. Is this really the scientific evidence that stands out to us and says, you know, this this is a this is something conclusive we can put our trust in? There was a, a Dr. Marcia Angle. She used to be the New England Journal uh, of Medicine editor, and she said, you know, 
it's not possible any longer to believe much of the clinical research that's published or to rely on the judgment of physicians or authorities in a medical establishment. This is an insider. And really what it points to is a pharmaceutical industry that has is a chronic offender of criminal fraud. That's proven. And, it, and like you said, it culminated in one of the uh, most significant medical perils in history, the COVID-19 vaccine, mm-hmm. where we're at today which devastated the health of millions and killed tens of thousands. So my question here is, is it not a bit rich that this industry should belittle the safety of the humble herb? Mm. Now, given so these statistics. You, you quoted the, uh, the, the, the editor of the uh, New England Journal of Medicine saying that we can no longer trust them. Is she implying that there was a time when, say, the the uh, methods that they used were more reputable and trustworthy and that it has been corrupted somehow? I, I would think, given her quote, that she, uh, she implies that it used to be more trustworthy, but uh, probably we're looking at decades ago, hmm. decades ago. Corruption has always been in the industry I mean, there's just too much money in it. Well, Whether yeah, the, the amount of that, money that uh, that it now, now it, uh, it flows through those pharmaceutical companies and that they are throwing at government and uh, those government agencies are receiving from those companies is, is just obscene now. Well, that's right. So whether she came to that conclusion later on and, and had her eyes opened and just worded it like this, but I would say, you know, you can go back to the 50s and there's probably studies showing that there was some sort of corruption starting then. It was always big business. Uh, it's about the money first, but you know, I'm sure noble, there was some noble origins to the medicine where they really wanted to help, but it's just grown into this behemoth monster uh, that just makes money, obscene amounts of money. So uh, you're, you're talking about the, the, uh, the way that they disparage natural remedies, and even that was evident in their response to, to COVID. They were just uh, really belittling some of these, uh, some, some of these uh, treatments that have been around for quite a long time that have been proven to be safe uh, in favor of very expensive and extremely lucrative vaccines put out by uh, companies. Uh, I guess this is kind of the uh, you're talking about how we we really need to uh, to question the motives of the industry as they're disparaging some of these natural remedies. But maybe you could just talk about how herbs compare to medicine, uh, given what we do know scientifically. Right. I mean, if, if you listen to the words of the medical industry, you'd say, well, there's there's no proof. This stuff doesn't work, but that's not true. There's a considerable amount of scientific and clinical evidence that substantiates some of the more specific herbal claims. And, um, and that's all proven online. I mean, you can find hundreds of studies. It's just words. Words don't mean anything anymore. A medical authority says, look, this, this vaccine is good for you. Take it. Just believe us. Words don't mean anything anymore and they can't be trusted. But I do want to say that, um, you know, herbs, just like modern medicines, they can't heal either. And and some practitioners say, you know, herbs can heal this. and can, No, 
what they specialize in is they help to promote long-term wellness by assisting the body's natural uh, recuperative abilities. Mm. And, you know, on balance, if you're looking at herbs, uh, they're more, they are powerful and they can be harmful uh, in the wrong hands with the wrong knowledge. Mm-hmm. But I'll explain how to how to get about that because by far they're they're safer than pharmaceuticals and they don't have the lingering side effects that often accompany drugs. You know they don't inhibit the body's natural healing processes. So instead, they just boost the ability to strengthen the immune system, and that's what's so wonderful about them. Herbs aren't used for specific diseases. Herbs are used to bring the body back to balance. That's really what they're for. And if, if you're really looking at it, you know, medicine, a medical doctor will say, well, they're really dangerous. You could die. Well, try to look that up. You know, their use leading to death or hospitalization is so rare, it's hard to find. Like even the National Poison Control Centers of the United States, it doesn't have a database category for adverse reactions from herbs. And trust me, <laughs> if there was a lot of them, they would be listed. Um, that's just the way they work. Now, their side effects are, you know, they've been well explored and documented over thousands of years. Mankind knows how to use herbs in general. You know, they just have a weaker but safer effect than pharmaceuticals. And then basically it's a primary source of natural medicine that, that goes back further even than pharmaceuticals, you know? So... You can use you could use uh, garlic, which is a bulb. It will be considered part of it. You could use cayenne, which is a spice. Uh, uh, ginkgo extract, which is a tree leaf. You know, all of those could be properly called an herb. There's lots of safe herbs out there. Um, herbal teas are wonderful. I use them all the time. You know, with the right ingredients and methods, you can gain a many many benefits from it. For example. I'll just give a couple of examples, lavender and old straw to help with insomnia. Mm. You know, uh, lemongrass aids with digestion or horsetail strengthens bones. Uh, there's so many examples of, of helpful herbs that the list is almost endless, but so are the benefits. You know, and if you look at the drawbacks, there's hardly any. So, um, Teas you can make as um, like a, the leaves themselves, which I use, and I and I have about six or seven type of leaves that I use in my teas, and uh, they do keep you very healthy, you know, and they have a lot of vitamins and nutrients in them. I love them. Or you could steep the, uh, you could do what's called decoction, which is the root and twig, which is even more powerful, and then you have to boil those for a little while. Um, if you don't like teas, then you can do, go into uh, a soft stem variety like parsley or basil or dill, which is used in salads or sandwiches. You know, everybody uses those. We're very familiar with them. Or you could use mint, lavender, or rosemary in drinks or in desserts, mm-hmm. you know. Um, now, the good thing is you know, you need no prescription for these like you would with a synthetic drug. You just, you could use, uh, if you have something on your arm, you could use a poultice or a compress, for a wound or infection, which work very, very well. Uh, you can apply a, a cream or a salve or a liniment or an oil to soothe irritations or inflammations or bruises. 
um, they work very well. I've used all of those, mm-hmm. you know, or as I've said, you can use a tincture, which is just alcohol based or a tea for ailments. So, um, but there are some rules with herbs that I'd like to just quickly uh, remind our listeners of, um, because you do have to be wise with them. Um, it's best to have a basic knowledge of what herbs are and how they work. You know, there's 300,000 herbs out there, distinct plant species, and we know about 10% of them. Wow. So the best way to get herbs is, is to simply buy them standardized at health food stores or online. And most of those are in, in you know, safe quantities or they give you instructions with them. And that takes a lot of the uncertainty out of picking your own herbs and making mistakes in the wild. And I think most people will go that road. Um, I would say sensible guidelines for herbs would be, you know, use only those recommended in well-respected herb books. I carry quite a, a good list of books myself. I only use those formulas in there. Don't use any that cause any adverse effects. Um, you know, don't use any on complex health conditions without knowledge. And just understand that they can interact. If you're on a medicine, they can interact with a medicine. So just, you know, be careful. Mm-hmm. But having said that, after you've done your research and you follow those precautions, um, you can easily take charge of your health and, and treat minor ailments before they worsen. Uh, and I do have an article with this, and I've listed about six books that people could turn to as a reference. Mm-hmm. You know, and they give you a, a ton of information, wonderful information on how to do things very safely. And then what you can really do is let this natural remedy, these herbs, which is natural remedy, and replace them replace synthetic drugs with them and and you know there is something worth saving in these outdated herbs as they as they're called it's an old method but it works it's a natural way of promoting health there's no chemicals there's no sugars there's no carcinogens in them it's just clean powerful plants that keep you feeling great and prevent disease and and that's what natural medicine should be about it's very interesting. I uh, I'm I'm just reminded of the uh, the verse in Genesis one where it it says that God uh, God says, "Behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree which is uh, in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed to you it shall be for meat." That God put these plants there to be used, and as you were going through some of those uh, ingredients, uh, there's a lot of those that. They're quite delicious as well. Uh, they work well in uh, just as added uh, ingredients to your cooking and that type of thing. So we do appreciate you you bringing that to us and uh, just keeping those in uh, in perspective. We we talk uh, a lot about just um, having faith in God and trusting Him for uh, for looking after us and and uh, for healing uh, that God alone can heal. But, uh, but also, we do need to maintain our bodies according to what we know to do, and uh, God has provided us some of those tools to, to help us to uh, have the kind of robust health that He really desires. We've been talking with personal trainer and holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian about just comparing the efficacy of synthetic medicines versus herbs. Uh, he's written an article that uh, should appear on the trumpet.com soon with uh, the information that he was uh, speaking of there that you might be able to look at for further study. Thank you again very much for your time, York. 
Thank you. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. The Bible prophesies of a strong man taking over German politics in the end time. For years, our editor-in-chief at The Trumpet has talked about the possibility of this prophetic role being fulfilled by a man named Karl Theodor zu Gutenberg. This man has been out of the political limelight for many years, but a recent development appears to be thrusting him back into prominence. Are we about to see Gutenberg's rise? To talk about this, we have here in the studio trumpet writer Josue Michels. Hello. Hello, Mr. Helica. Tell us about Gutenberg's big announcement last month. Yes, it's quite a big announcement because Gutenberg, after he left politics, he was very quiet. He didn't talk much to media. There was weeks where you didn't find anything about what Gutenberg was up to, what he was thinking about. But right now, it appears that he will make a big comeback, at least in the media scene. Last month, it was announced that he signed a contract with RTL, RTL, a German TV channel. And it's a fairly popular channel, and his wife and he himself has been, have been in contact with that TV channel in the past. And it reaches quite a few millions and hosts many popular moderators. And he also signed a contract with a fairly popular company that has helped very popular moderators that even I grew up watching when I was younger. So he is investing big time in making quite a big splash in the media scene. And he doesn't shy away from speaking his opinion in front of millions anymore, it seems like. The celebrity magazine Bunte said that he will be a TV presenter, book author and broadcaster as a second career. So this indicates that he's shifting away from what he used to do as an investor and advisor to many companies to being full-time, maybe even full-time, back as an entertainer slash giving documentaries. So the uh, he, as you said, he's done a lot of of different things after leaving politics. He was the defense minister for some time, left in shame because of a uh, because of his his doctoral thesis having been proven to have been plagiarized. Uh, he's been doing a whole lot. We've been talking about him making a political comeback. So this isn't a political comeback. Uh, it's it's just entering more into the public eye within Germany. How has the public responded to this announcement and why? how does this uh, possibly indicate a political return? Yes, the response was quite interesting because if you consider it's a, for the beginning, just two shows, 90-minute shows on a streaming platform, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. But most Every single newspaper that I follow reported on it. Quite a few regional papers responded on it. I'm on a notification. Anytime Gutenberg does something, I get a notification, and that didn't end for days hmm. on end. I couldn't keep up with all the articles, and usually it's maybe one article a month 
or every two months even even if that so everyone reported on it everyone basically said the same thing but they felt the urge to have an article on it <laughs> just to show that they are interested in it whatever the case may be now there were some that were making fun of it making jokes that he might be talking about plagiarism scandals and exposing <laughs> them others have said well he's coming at a time where germany is in a great crisis and we need him back in office we can't have him on tv we need him to actually hmm. make decisions where it matters so that was quite interesting to see some of those papers urging their readership to consider him to take some more action and they even said the fact that gutenberg is coming back just shows that he's being pulled he wants more attention and they made a point that many make that once you have power it leaves like a vacuum in you like you want it back you want it to be filling you and gutenberg has made statements in the past that he's missing something to that nature to really make an impact so as an entertainer or giving documentaries he won't have that impact so it seems like there's more he wants and as far as it goes like could this lead to political office there are many people that for it were for donald trump for example it was the case where he was an entertainer before he became a politician the president of ukraine had a similar career so he definitely becomes back into the public eye and it could be that he actually plans a political comeback that way just considering the timing europe is in a crisis a financial crisis of all things something he has warned about something he has given speeches about how europe needs to go together in a new financial system he has warned about russia for many years so these are the kind of crisis that he wants to shape so this might be where he says like now i can speak to the german public now i can show them that i have the solutions while the leadership in germany doesn't so that's very interesting that he chooses this timing for that so yeah that that is fascinating that uh, that these media outlets are making the jump from uh, here he's he's going on television he's going to be uh, commentating and that type of thing too we actually need this man in office uh, you you alluded to a few things there but maybe you could just talk a little bit more about Gutenberg's credentials and why people would actually be looking to him as having the expertise needed to address some of the problems that Germany faces today yes that's right he has quite an elaborate history he was economics minister and then defense minister and the defense minister as defense minister he actually shrank Sherman's army so people make fun of him for doing that but he has a lot of knowledge about the German military and he has a desire of German greatness for sure and he arose German desire and interest in the Bundeswehr the German army that has never been before and now is the time where Germany actually wants their army to be in the limelight they want a strong military so you can easily see why they would look to gutenberg who encouraged the german people to look more to their army to accept it as part of the society right he he shrank the military but he also made it a professional military that uh and and as you said kind of rehabilitated the role of the army in the military in the eyes of the german public 
Yes, that's a very good point that many people don't see. Germany's army was focused on defense, like someone invades, you need a strong manpower army to protect your country. But Gutenberg saw it with a different vision. He wanted an army that's ready to act, for example, in crisis overseas, like in the Middle East, like in Afghanistan. So he was more focused on having a slimmer army, but a professional army. And there are sayings that Germany has a small army during World War II or lead up to World War II, but the army of officers. So if you have an army of mm -hmm. officers, the manpower can easily be acquired. And even that can come from other European nations these days. And even his uh, understanding of economics is uh, is quite interesting, given the fact that uh, economics is is really driving so much of the crisis that's taking place within Europe right now. Uh, how is it that his expertise would uh, lend itself to being him being looked to as a solution? Yes, he has said in the past, politicians speak about topics they have little to no understanding of. And he recognized that he understood very little about the financial system. And one of the reasons he went to the United States, he stated, was to understand the financial system better. But now the financial system is centered around the United States. But European nations are suffering from the economic turmoil that comes from the United States as well. So he has been working on finding alternatives And some of those alternatives are uh, European digital currencies that he is advocating. And he wants that to be separate, still in cooperation with the United States, he says, but separate and independent that it can stand outside of the current corrupt system. And obviously, he does that in a desire to have trade centered more around Europe. Technologies he has been studying are blockchain technology, and he has been on many meetings with, in that scene with the financial sector, financial technology companies that have been advised by him. So he understands that part, but he also understands the political part. So these two factors kind of make him stand out from people in the financial industry, but also from the people in politics. He kind of understands both sides. Even his latest thesis, he wrote a new thesis after leaving politics hmm. and was about correspondent banking, a very detailed history that goes back to ancient Babylon. But in that thesis, he talks about, in the conclusion, he talks about a new financial currencies. And he says, if you understand history, you can shape the future better. So he is legitimately Dr. Gutenberg now. Yes, and many articles have called him again Dr. Gutenberg to <laughs> emphasize that. The fact that he uh, he did it correctly this time without, uh, without the plagiarism. So let's just talk about the prophecy now. Uh, our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, he's drawn so much attention to these biblical prophecies about a German strongman, Herbert W. Armstrong, uh, talked about that for decades before him explain why it is that we are so focused on this aspect of german politics yes as everyone can see right now especially europe seems leaderless they don't have an answer to russia they try to reform the military but there's no solution no strong man to lead it the european union is still fractured 
there's just a big leadership vacuum. But when you read Bible prophecy, you get a very distinct, different view in Europe. It repeatedly talks about a strong man rising in Europe. You can read it in Daniel 8, you can read it in Daniel 11, you can read it in, Daniel, in Revelation 13 and in Revelation 17. It talks about strong authoritarian leadership coming to Europe like it has been during the times of the Holy Roman Empire where kings and emperors ruled countries in Europe as it has been during the time of Adolf Hitler where one man was in control of the army, of politics, of the foreign political decisions, of everything combined. And a prophecy specifically in Daniel 11:21, I believe it is, speaks that this man will come on the scene through flatteries. So this implies that there will be a time where the political course of the country will be uncertain. People will be looking for solutions. And there will be one man who may not speak the truth all the time, but he can sway people to focus on him as the solution. And many people feel like that about Gutenberg. They may not always understand what a crisis is, but I can connect to how Gutenberg explains it. And that's very interesting because as an entertainer or as one that explains politics in a combination, he can use humor and he can use the current crisis to really show the people that there is hope for the country and he can show them how to solve it. So he's really in a prime position to sway the mood of the country just as it has been prophesied. So we don't know exactly how we will make that transition, but our trumpet editor-in-chief, Jeff Louis, has often pointed to Gutenberg as the most likely man to fulfill these prophecies. Because of this man's history, he, has, he is in the nobility, he has connections to the Habsburgs, he has been very keen in the military industry, and he has been in politics for a short amount of time, but interested in geopolitics for much longer time. So if you take everything together, what Gutenberg offers and what he's currently doing, Mr. Flew has pointed out that this man is the man to be watched. Thank you very much for that. Where would you send people to learn more about that prophecy? Mr. Flew has written an article quite extensively in 2019, I believe it was, is KT zu Gutenberg about to come to power? In that article, he goes through various qualifications that Gutenberg has, the things he has done in the past few years, and compares each single one with Bible prophecy. So it shows that you can study the Bible and study current events and form your own self about where those prophecies are leading and who will be the man to fulfill this prophecy. Okay, well, thank you very much. We've been talking with trumpet writer Josue Michels about Carl Theodor de Gutenberg making a move back into the public limelight. Uh, you can watch for uh, the article that uh, he was talking about, Mr. Flurry, is KT Zu Gutenberg about to come to power? And uh, we also have a booklet called A Strong German Leader is Imminent. We'll link to that in the show notes if you want more information. Thanks so much, Josue. Thanks for having me again.
It's time for today's last word. Proverbs 29 and verse 2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. So the quality of leadership makes the difference between people rejoicing and mourning. That's a big, big difference. So what makes for good leadership? There's not one formula. There's not one correct way to lead. Different people have different styles and personalities and approaches. But there are certain factors that are constant. And one of the most important of those factors, which underpins all godly leadership, comes straight from the Bible in Matthew chapter 20. Here in this passage, the mother of two of Jesus's disciples approaches him and says, you know, I, I think my two sons are really special. I, I hear you're establishing a kingdom, and I was wondering what you would think of giving my sons some really high offices. Now, this is the way a lot of people in the world think about leadership. That's kind of the way the world works, people seeking out positions of authority and greatness for themselves. Well, Jesus said, that's not how my father runs his government. He basically said being in an office in God's kingdom is not just a glory position. It requires a lot of work, a lot of unselfishness and sacrifice, and in that passage in Matthew 20, you had the other 10 disciples. They were thinking about their own personal glory, and they got upset at the prospect of these two men receiving special positions in the kingdom of God. Well, Christ used this as an opportunity to teach a lesson in how different godly leadership is. It's nothing like what you see in the world. He called his disciples together, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. In other words, in this world, people who want to be great go about it the wrong way. And God's approach to leadership is very different. Christ said, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 27 there in Matthew 20 in the Living Bible, it says, If you want to be right at the top, you must serve like a slave. So this is God's view. In his thinking, the leader is the servant. And that's how to be great God's way. This really could be the most critical passage in the Bible on the subject of leadership. In his view, it's all about service, and this is really profound and beautiful, and it really shows how God is going to fix the problems in this world. This is a huge overarching principle of godly leadership, and it's one that you and I can practice in our day-to-day life. If you want to be great, learn to be a servant. And if you want to be first, then serve like a slave. It's a mindset that God wants to develop in us of seeing other people's needs and serving those needs. This past year at our K-12 through school, Imperial Academy, I asked all of the students there to give two to three ideas for ways that we could improve our school. 
and we we formed a student council and this was basically their their application to getting on the student council and we were really overwhelmed by a lot of terrific ideas from these young people and we chose 12 students to serve on the council and uh, and then that council we worked with them to implement many of the ideas that we were given so this this council was there working to serve the student body they were working on their behalf we talked about the fact that they were representatives of the other students you're not there to serve yourself you're there to serve the needs of the student body and that whole exercise I was so impressed. I loved the way that it got the students thinking uh, about looking for needs and looking for ways to improve things and looking for ways to help other people. We can all work to develop this way of looking at things. You, you have to put on your leadership goggles and you start to see things differently. At our summer camp, I was talking to the campers about uh, the dance that we held earlier this this week and if you're at a dance and you're looking around normally then you're thinking about things like well i hope people like my outfit and maybe i hope that i get to dance with so and so or i hope i get asked to dance i i don't want to look stupid i'm going to sit this dance out but if you slip on your leadership goggles then you start to see different things you're looking at the same scene but you start to see things like people who are shy, people who are sitting on the sidelines that you can go up and talk with to try to improve the experience for them. You see girls on the side of the dance floor who aren't getting asked to dance, and you can go up and, and talk with them, or you can ask them to dance, get them out on the floor. You're, you're looking at needs. You're looking for needs. You're looking for ways to serve others to make it a better experience for other people. Our editor-in-chief, Gerald Fleury, he uh, told a story from years ago in his life when he was serving in a, a local congregation in the church, and he was doing all that he could to, to try to help people. He was visiting. He was getting out and spending time with people. And he said this, when we would have socials and dances and such things, if the minister over this church area saw the, the leading members in there, the deacons and those on the visiting program, standing around and talking to each other, he would come over and say, what are you doing? You're supposed to be out visiting with the people. Get to know the people and spend time with them and talk with them. Don't spend time here talking to each other. And Mr. Fleury says, that was great training for me. I've always, I was always looking over my shoulder every time we had a social. I knew if I spent too much time with the regular guys, he'd be coming. That's terrific advice. And really, we can all learn to think that way more than we do. Learning how to really get out and spend time with people and serve people. In Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Look on the things of others. At our summer camp, we, we sit around at our meals. We have nine people sitting around each of the, the round tables in our dining hall. And if you're sitting at that 
meal table and you're just looking at the situation normally, you're thinking, well, man, I am starving. I really want to eat. I'm, I'm tired. I don't really feel like talking. You know, naturally, you're just kind of thinking about yourself. That's just the way that we all tend to be. But you slip on your leadership goggles and you start seeing your responsibility. You start seeing things like, hey, these are some wonderful people I'm sitting with here. How can I get to know them better? You know, we're having a pretty good conversation, but Jim isn't contributing. How can I bring him into the conversation? Is this conversation at a good standard? How can I make this so that it's more edifying, more productive? With those goggles on, you're looking for needs and you're looking for ways to improve that experience for other people. And no one is too young or too old to work on this in our lives. And for young people, if if they begin to develop this mindset at this point in their lives, then they're going to be preparing for adulthood in some powerful ways. Preparing to be husbands and wives and fathers and mothers. Preparing for really great positions of leadership. All of those leadership roles are serving positions. No matter how much authority you come to possess, no matter how low or lofty the position of leadership you gain, what remains constant is the need to recognize and prioritize the needs of others. There is a never-ending need to be attentive and alert to others, to assess what is in their best interest, and to seek the best way to attain that outcome. So put on your leadership goggles and open your eyes to how much opportunity life gives you to exercise godly leadership. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Abraham Blondeau, Jorg Mardian, and Yozoe Michels. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. And I'll leave you with this thought from Marie Ray. Begin doing what you want to do now. We have only this moment, sparkling like a star in our hand and melting like a snowflake. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.